Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Larry Bush practices infectious disease medicine. There have been a number of candidates, and the key word candidates, because they are not yet FDA-approved COVID vaccines, and we need to know how to approach them. One of the questions is, what does a vaccine do? Let me summarize it. We induce the body to produce its own ability to fight something, And that's what we're trying to do. The question, sir, and I do thank you so much for joining us, is how do we approach these proposed medications, these vaccines, now that there's such a rush? How do we know that they're safe? How do we know that they've been adequately tested? How do we know whether one is better, the one from AstraZeneca is better than Pfizer? It's an open sheet of paper for you, please, sir. Where should we begin to understand this? Well, that's great. Thanks for having me, Dr. Strauss. So if you look at world population and public health, the two things that have changed public health throughout the history of humankind are immunizations or vaccinations and clean water. Children were dying of diarrhea diseases, and children and adults were dying of respiratory and gastrointestinal diseases that we now can safely and effectively prevent with vaccines. Examples are measles, congenital measles or German measles, varicella zoster, smallpox, polio, pertussis, which is whooping cough. But think about this also. In the last one-third of a century, we have two extremely effective and safe vaccines that prevent cancer. The hepatitis B vaccine prevents hepatic or liver cancer, and hepatitis B causes more liver cancer throughout the world than any other disease. And we have the human papillomavirus to prevent cervical cancer and penile cancer and throat cancer. So those are crucial. So moving forward with coronavirus, or what we call COVID-19, is that we've known for the past 18 years that this is the third pandemic with this type of novel virus, which is a respiratory spread disease. Therefore, it is very hard for any one individual to prevent from getting short of staying in their home and never venturing outside. The mechanism of producing a vaccine, it would seem, how did they come about that so quickly? They did not reinvent the mechanism. They've used old mechanisms and a few novel mechanisms and plugged the genetics of this vaccine into those platforms, so to speak, and put them through phase one and two trials. But when the FDA approves things, it's usually after a lot of debate and investigation of the trials and then they give it what's called FDA approval. So you can look on a package, you know, approved by the FDA. If you look at supplements, over-the-counter vitamins, it always says not approved by the FDA, but it says FDA considers generally safe. They call it GRAF. Uh, that doesn't mean they say it works. They say, now all those little statements they make good for human, for immune system health and cardiac and mental being and this, that, and the other, that's their statement with an asterisk then saying this has never been proven in any clinical trial. FDA, because of the crisis and the severity and because we don't have anything else, if we had available vaccines, they wouldn't do EUAs for a new one, EUA meaning emergency access or authorization. But since we have either this or nothing, they say, okay, here's the data. It definitely produces a good immune response. They've been proven to prevent COVID. How long that will last, I don't know. And at least the data we have, it's safe enough to offer. You know what happened here in my mind? Think about it. What, what the administration did was they say, okay, these, these companies have the platform to make these viruses. They don't have to decide how do you scientifically make them. And we're going we're gonna to lower the bar as far as regulation and bureaucracy 
but we're not going to lower the bar as far as safety and efficacy, but we are going to give EUAs where we wouldn't do that before. Phase one is to see that it doesn't harm the patient. Phase two is to continue to see it doesn't harm the patient and to make sure that it produces an immune response, mimicking your own natural response as if you got exposed to the virus. Now we're in phase three. So there are five trials of phase three vaccines, and they have different mechanisms of action, but they all produce good immunity that we know from phase two. The goal of the phase three is to prove that it prevents somebody who got the vaccine from actually becoming infected with COVID. And as you know, over the past week or two, we've had two of the early phase three trials, the Pfizer and the Moderna, release their data saying we are 90 to 95% effective in protecting the patient who got the vaccine from getting COVID versus the placebo. The next step is they will present that data to the FDA, who will vet it and look at it. And after they do that, make sure it's effective, make sure it's safe, they will say, we'll give it emergency utilization authorization. And the reason they call it emergency is because they're still going to look at things, how long does this last? Are there any mild side effects that we should be warning patients about? But because we're in an emergency, that's why they'll do it. Right now, the other trials going on, the AstraZeneca trial, this is the Oxford University trial from London. I'm the principal investigator for that trial here in Palm Beach County. And there's a Johnson & Johnson trial. What's the difference? They produce immunity slightly differently. It's hard to say which is better, but here's what I would ask patients. There are about a dozen influenza vaccines available. And when one goes to their doctor, Walgreens, CVS, Publix, to get a flu vaccine, does anybody ask, which one am I getting? What are my choices? Well, maybe they should start thinking about that when they do have the opportunity to get a COVID vaccine, which is going to be necessary to end this pandemic. If someone does get the vaccine, say from Pfizer, and it doesn't work well enough, or someone comes, let's say the AstraZeneca vaccine appears to be somewhat better, can a person have a second vaccine? Can we get too many vaccinations? We can get too many vaccinations. And when you think about it, that's why we only give the pneumococcal vaccine once when you're after 65, because theoretically, there is some possibility of what's called antibody enhanced disease when you have too much stimulation of the antibodies. Now that's theoretic. Now somebody did get one of the early COVID vaccines and then another one came out that they read or heard may be better. Nobody can stop them because these will be commercially available vaccines once the distribution centers are totally open. Could it be harmful? It could be. Could it be beneficial? Nobody knows because once you have antibodies producing more, it doesn't necessarily mean it's better. When we measure somebody having antibodies, they're either there or not there. We don't quantitate them in their general clinical setting. So my recommendation would be that if, if you did receive one of the early COVID-19 vaccines and you had no problem with it, I would not get a second one when a different one comes out because there's no knowledge that it would be beneficial and there's theoretical knowledge that it could be harmful. Do all the vaccines have the same endpoint? Do they produce the same antibody if we were to take an antibody produced by Pfizer versus an antibody produced by any other company? If we looked at it carefully, is it the same antibody or are there slight differences in that as well? Good question. They all produce what's called neutralizing antibody. And what the antibody they're producing is made to neutralize is what's called the S 
surface protein spike. That's the coronavirus, the spikes you see coming out of that picture we're so used to seeing now of the coronavirus, because that spike attaches to our respiratory cells receptor, which is a little complicated to get into, that allows the virus to enter the cell and destroy the cell and cause lung damage and other damage in other organ tissues. So the antibody's idea is to block that receptor from attaching. There's other parts of this, though. Some of these vaccines produce what we call cell-mediated immunity. And what that does is they attack cells that already got infected and kill them before the virus can break out of those and infect other cells. But there's a third part of what the antibodies do. Some of the vaccines also have been proven that even if you do get infected, they could abate the disease from becoming very severe because they'll start hindering the virus from replicating even after it's infected you. That's why when people say, I got the flu vaccine, but I still got the flu, and then we hear, well, the flu vaccine was only 50% effective last year. But those who get the vaccine also get less of a severe disease because it has another effect. I just want to mention, people say, well, why do I need a new flu vaccine every year? Am I going to need a new coronavirus vaccine every year? Only if we have a new novel coronavirus. We had SARS-1 in 2002, MERS in 2013, and now SARS-2 in 2019, 2020. This current coronavirus, COVID-19, does not appear to mutate, meaning you will not need yearly vaccines. The antibodies appear to be very long-lasting. They know that from going back and looking at the first novel coronavirus infection, SARS, in 2002. The reason we need a new flu vaccine every year is because the flu has a high rate of mutation, and what we're going to get next year may not at all be what was around this year. It appears from just the more general view of the coronavirus issues that they tend to be for older people and sicker people. We hear repeatedly that amongst college-age kids that because of their parties that they become spreading parties. That means perhaps that these younger people actually have the virus in them because it's got to be spread from somewhere. My end point here is what age group are these vaccines aimed at, if we know thus far? And in particular, what effect might this have on a girl who gets pregnant after she takes the vaccine? Do we have any data about all these variables in the people who are in their young 20s? Do we have any information? Yeah, that's a good question. So when you look at risk and who's going to get sick, in other words, who's at high risk? There's two things. Who's at high risk of getting infected? And who's at high risk of doing poorly if they get infected? So the risk of getting infected has nothing to do with your immune status or with your age. It has to do with your exposure. Obviously, younger people have more exposure and perhaps they're less concerned about becoming infected. Studies have shown that the major spreading is going on in households. In fact, in one study, it showed that if a person's infected in a household, 53% of everybody in that household became infected, whether symptomatically or without any symptoms, because they tested them every day. So younger people do get infected, but they have much less illness because their immune system is stronger because their organs are not as weathered as people as they get older, and because they may produce better antibodies after natural infection. Elderly people and people who have underlying conditions, diabetes, heart disease, people who are overweight, people who are on medications that lower your immune system or have diseases that lower your immune system, they are not necessarily more at risk of becoming infected, but they will do more poorly, and they've made up 86% of all the 2.6% mortality from COVID-19. 
people under the age of 34 have made up less than one-third of one percent. So about 0.3% of all mortality in the United States has been from people under 34. So it's not so much the young people not getting infected, it's just that they don't get very symptomatic and therefore they have a high risk of going home or to their friends and spreading it. There have been so many ads on television for medications like Humira, and this is suggestive that they have some sort of autoimmune or immunologic problem. Should these people be, shall we say, given the vaccine earlier on? Will the rheumatologist actually be giving a lot of this vaccine? The issue in the studies right now, if you have an active immunologic defect, or if you're on a medication that suppresses your immune system like Humira does. Humira is meant to lower your immune system because diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis and psoriasis are your immune system cells fighting those organs causing damage. So that's an aberration in our immune system. So the drugs that lower your immune system are meant to block that. On the other hand, the immune system doesn't actually know what it's supposed to be fighting and therefore they've lowered your chance of defending against an organism. Now having said that the studies do not include any of these people so when the EUA comes out they're going to say the vaccine's not been proven effective or safe in a pregnant women B children under 18 C people with immune system defects or on immune modulating medications because they're excluded from the study and the reason for that is because if those people had events from the vaccine it would shut down the trial and the vast majority of people who don't have those issues would never have an opportunity to benefit from the vaccine but I think that will be a doctor-patient decision when these vaccines come out, the risk-benefit. For instance, right now, you would not get a live vaccine, for instance, a chickenpox vaccine, if you were on Humira. It would be contraindicated. Or if you had HIV disease that was uncontrolled and your immune system was low, we would not give you a live vaccine. But keep in mind, if we develop enough herd immunity in the folks who don't have those underlying conditions, then the spread to the people who do will be much, much less. So there'll be some collateral benefit, even if you don't vaccinate them. A lot of people hear in the news about what is referred to as R. Let me ask you, explain what this meant when people refer to the R variable. So the R variable is a reproduction factor. It's a number. And what it's basically saying, if you have one infected individual with COVID, how many people are they statistically likely to infect? That is around two to three. So for every one person with COVID, they will infect knowingly or unknowingly two to three others, and then they will go on to infect two or three others. Let's put that in the comparison. Measles is 13 to 18. It's the most infectious respiratory disease that we know of. Compare it to influenza. Influenza is around one to one and a half. So we need to cut down the R factor. So by vaccinating people, every one person who would have become infected now will not infect two and a half to three others knowingly or unknowingly. So it's a moderately, in the realm of infectious viruses that are respiratory spread, it's higher than influenza, but it's much lower than things like chickenpox and measles. Many of my patients ask me, if I would be comfortable being the first one in line to take one of the vaccines. From a physician's point of view, if I've read the data, I might, but I must confess that underneath that is a certain trepidation because these vaccines have been tested in 10, 20, 30, 40,000 people, and that's wonderful. 
but it's a big difference when it's catapulted up to millions of people with every conceivable variable that you can imagine. How do you as an infectious disease doctor prepare them for all the things that are going to come onto the table in the next couple months? When people ask me, should I enter the trial and study this vaccine, I give them a few questions. One, I tell them, yes, my wife entered the first day. Two, I would enter on the first day, but as a principal investigator, I'm forbidden from becoming a participant in the trial because it's supposed to be unbiased and blinded. Three, I tell them, if people did not enter trials for smallpox, German measles, measles, and polio, you would be seeing children in wheelchairs, and you would see a lot of people with marks on them if they hadn't died from smallpox. Lastly, I tell them that from all, as far as we can tell, the vaccine is as safe as other vaccines. That's not a guarantee. I also tell them that when we think about the swine flu vaccine and Guillain-Barre associated with it in 1976, that the chance of getting Guillain-Barre is multitudes greater from getting the natural flu from getting the flu vaccine. That doesn't mean the influenza vaccine cannot give you a neurologic event. I also ask them, when you get that package insert, when you go to your pharmacy for any medication or any antibiotic, and that package insert is five pages in microscript, do you read it? And it lists everything from this may make you have lifelong diarrhea to this may make you have an anaphylactic reaction and die tonight. But everybody swallows the pill. And in fact, they say, I have a cold. Can I have my Z-Pack? So I try to put it in perspective of where we are and what's really changed the world. And although there's no guarantee, and we always hear about side effects, the risk-benefit of these vaccines is so far in the realm of benefit that I think it's, in my mind, it's negligent not to get the vaccine. I, I think it's negligent to send a child to school without a measles vaccine or a polio vaccine or not to vaccinate a teenager against human papillomavirus because you think it's going to give them this false sense of security to go have sexual activity. You can prevent cancer. It just makes no sense to me why people are so hesitant. I think the major reason is we as physicians somehow have lost the trust of our patients and of the public. Because when you look at statistics, Abby, the number one reason why people agree to get a vaccine, 85% say because my physician recommended and discussed it and described it. I just absolutely agree with you on that. And the world is going to now in the next year really have to come to terms with all sorts of interventions for COVID. Pray tell. They work. I appreciate your time and explaining some of these basic concepts that people have to come to terms with. And as you just said, discuss it without politics with your physician. Learn as much as you can. Larry Bush practices infectious diseases in Palm Beach County. As always, he brings us excellent information and good insight. Dr. Bush, thank you so much. Have good holidays and keep safe. And again, thank you, thank you, sir, for this very good information. Oh, thank you for asking me to present it. I think it's important people hear this.